We are continuing now at the close of Advent. We're continuing now back in our series, The Final Word, as Pastor Ron mentioned earlier. We're in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. It's page 901 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. John chapter 14, starting in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on with my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to look at this text now, and we want to draw your attention back to the, actually the, the, uh, the not the first week or the last week of November, but the, the week before that, when I spoke before we moved into the Advent series, in this particular text. We spoke on the subject of Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled, Part 1. And hopefully you can remember some of that, but I want to take you back there for a minute. And what I said then uh, has reference to even what we're going to continue to talk about in Part 2 here, that disciples had troubled hearts. 
And, and twice in this text, actually, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. He knew they were troubled. They were asking questions. Part of, as he, Pastor Jason began to read this text, they're asking questions. And Jesus knows that, that even though he's giving them answers, they're not fully going to understand those answers until later. And we'll talk about even next week, some of that. But he was giving them answers that later would make more sense to them. And in many ways, some of these answers probably just confused them more and troubled their hearts more in some sense. Not all of it, but in some sense, I think it probably did just that, and Jesus knew it was going to do that. It's interesting to me, a couple of things in this text that are kind of sidelights. One is, we said it a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago, that Jesus centers in on the heart. It's interesting to me that he says, let not your hearts be troubled. One of the things we try, again, to say as often as we can, that Christianity is a heart faith. It's about your heart. It's about what's going on in your heart. And Jesus zeroes right into what's going on in their heart. It's not something we paint on the outside. It's not something that that is performed outwardly, primarily. It's something that is inward, that affects the outward, certainly. But it is inward, the heart. And so Jesus centers in on the heart. And so what he talks about here is heart work that he wants to have be accomplished in their hearts. And secondly, the thing that I would point out here is it's, it's interesting that, that if anybody's heart was troubled at this point, wouldn't it have been Jesus' heart? Um, in the sense, because look at what he was facing. Look at where he could have turned his attention in on himself. He knew not maybe fully because of the limitations of his humanity that he took on and was willing to live under, but he was facing some excruciating hours ahead of him. But where were his thoughts? His thoughts were on his disciples, in comforting his disciples. And it's interesting at the end of this text, we're not going to talk about this this morning, but Jesus was going to go through some things, some excruciating things, And the the scripture at the very end of this text says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. In other words, in that text, he says, I freely choose to do this and go. It is not as though I am being coerced by the ruler of this world. I I am putting myself in this position of my own choice. Jesus willingly was willing to go in the next few hours and experience what he would experience. He would take on the wrath of the Father for our everlasting good. And he was willing to do that, his own initiative to do that, not being coerced by anything else except his love for those people. So it's in that text, context, that I want to remind you of what we said. In, in the first sense, let not your hearts be troubled. Um, Jesus is, uh, is and talks about preparing an eternal resting place for his people. That's what he uses to try to comfort their hearts, number one. Point number one, the way he tries to comfort them is to tell them there is a place being prepared for you. We've talked about that in that particular day, that heaven is what he's talking about. And what I want you to see and know is that I think there is more continuity than discontinuity in heaven. 
the heavens and the earth will come together one day. I think it is important that we see heaven as, as more of a restoration back to what it was in the beginning as the heavens and the earth come together in a new earth. And there will be much, I think, continuity. It will not just be ethereal floating around in the clouds. That is not the picture of heaven. That is not, I, I think, where the place that God has and is preparing for us. But it will, it will be more of a restoration back to what it was without sin, which we can't comprehend. But I think that's where we're headed, and that's what he used. That's what he used to try to comfort the hearts of the disciples. There is a place for you. And he tells that to them to strengthen their hearts. I told you at the end of that particular message, maybe this will help you remember it. Sometimes illustrations help that. But I told you of the letter that I received from my friend Sam, a longtime friend and colleague in ministry that I don't see very much anymore. But just recently he wrote me a note, and he ended the, the, the note and the letter by saying this, Onward, Ron, the finish line is getting closer. Onward, Ron, the finish line is getting closer. And it is for him and for me. And that was an encouragement to my heart because after the finish line is what Jesus says, there is a place prepared for his people. Now, this is the question that we spent much time on and what I want to bring you back to just for a moment to think about. I hope you've been thinking about it. I hope you didn't just leave it there on the table as we left. But the question is this, what does preparing a place for us look like? What does preparing a place for us look like? Does it mean that Jesus has to go to heaven, go to be at the right hand of the Father so he can make sure that the remodeling gets finished? Or that he can make sure that everything's dusted? Or that he can make sure that flowers are bought to put on the table when we come into our place that he has prepared for us? Are there preparations that are yet to be done to finish the project, if you will, so that it will be there for us when we get there? I don't know about you, but I think we could easily maybe think that, but if you really think that and really think about that, it doesn't make much sense, does it? It doesn't make much sense. In fact, other texts talk about a dwelling place prepared before the foundations of the world. So I don't think it has to do with him having to go and put the finishing touches on whatever remodeling we might think needs to be done or whatever needs to be prepared. But I do think it has something to do with finishing something. Not finishing the room, but finishing something. And if you remember, I, I just read to you a commentary on what I think that finishing is about. Again, I want to read it to you. It, it is powerful. And I could again thought, maybe I can just tell you this, but it's better to read it. Listen to what this commentator says. What is not ready, not yet prepared, is the way to get your room in God's presence. Sin has not been atoned for. You see, at this point when Jesus says this, he's... he's not gone to the cross. It's not very far ahead of him, but he's not gone there yet. And Jesus is the Lamb of God about to be slain. The wrath of God, the condemnation, which I read is for us having everlasting good from him, has not 
been poured on Christ yet. The curse of God is still unsatisfied. And Jesus is about to become a curse for us, but not yet. And bear our condemnation, but not yet. And endure the bruising of the Father, but not yet. Death is yet to be defeated, and Jesus is about to give his life and to take it back again from the jaws of death. Every obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house is about to be removed in the next three days. That's the thing I think Jesus means when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm preparing it not in the sense that it's defective, but that the way there is not prepared yet. I think Jesus confirms that he is thinking this in the way he writes in verses 4 to 6. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, I go to prepare a place for you, and as I go, I become the way that you get there. I am the truth that you hold on to to get there. And I am the life, the eternal life that you will enjoy when you get there. When I say I go prepare a place for you, I mean I open the way and I am the way. I confirm the truth and I am the truth. I purchase the life and I am that life. In other words, Peter and the other disciples and you and I do not need to have an unholy turmoil of soul that we are imperfect, wrath-deserving, unworthy followers of Jesus. Our sin does not mean that our place in God's household will be unavailable or unsuitable because Jesus this night goes to purchase our forgiveness and become the way to the Father. He makes our room not only available, but suitable and certain for his redeemed sheep. So let your hearts not be troubled. Trust me. Does that strengthen your heart to hear that? Jesus is going, or was going, to do that. And now he has done it. He has done all of that so that there's a certainty that there, in fact, is a room and it's all prepared. It's all ready. There's nothing left to be done. He finished the work. So how does that strengthen our soul? How does that truth strengthen? How does it practically strengthen Think about it a moment. When when you, and I don't know when these times come in your life, but they probably come because they come to me. I don't know when you're weak. I don't know when you're weak. I don't know when Satan can whisper things into your life. I know when he can do it to me, and I know when he fights the hardest, when he starts to whisper things like despair. Oh, how could God save somebody like you? You did that? Fear can rise up. Fear can rise up in your heart. So what do you do? You, you get reminded of this. You get reminded that Jesus has prepared a place. It's all done. It's all finished. He prepared the way to the place. The room is therefore ready and waiting. Ready and waiting. Suitable and certain. You see, the wrath that was once meant for me fell on him so that no longer 
will that wrath come to me? But it opened the way for him to provide for my everlasting good. And part of that is a place that is there. So instead of turning to sin, you know, that's what happens when despair rises up, fear rises up. Instead of turning to sin for relief from that pressure, whatever sin may look like, maybe, you know, sin can be pretty subtle sometimes. It's turning, sin is turning, turning to something when you should turn to God. So I don't know what it is for you, but instead of turning to sin because you feel condemnation, you feel separation, you're reminded that you're not separated. The wrath is gone. And so instead of turning to sin for relief, we fight the fight of faith to rest on the promise of God that it is suitable and it is certain. And and troubled hearts get quieted. You see, the the difference of that is troubled hearts come to all of us at times. And and we just think, well, I'll just wait till, till I feel different later. We don't do anything. We just stand there passively and let that trouble rise up. Let that voice speak to us. And, and we don't do anything to fight it. We just kind of passively let it happen, thinking, well, I'll wake up tomorrow and feel different. I'll feel like God loves me tomorrow if I just sleep on it. Well, you probably won't. Unless you pick up the promises of God, the truth of God in his gospel, unless you hear it regularly and chew on it and fight with it, It doesn't get better. Waiting won't help. Fighting will help. Fighting with the promises of God. Fighting with the promises that Jesus gave the disciples. There is a place. And it's a certain place because I have gone and prepared the way for it. That's just one way to fight with that text. But there's multitudes of texts to fight with in other places. So, now, that brings us to today. Really? And, and the second time when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And just before we go to that, let me just put a stamp on last time. The text where it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may know that by heart. And, and maybe you've quoted that numerous times to somebody or to, maybe you teach a class, you've quoted it. I've done that. I've quoted that text Hundreds of times. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I've spoken it probably hundreds of times from this pulpit. But you don't fully see the the power of it unless you see it in the context. The context makes it even more powerful. You see, when Jesus says that, he says it because he is going to prepare the way. And and the conclusion you come to that, and this is what Christianity teaches, this is Christianity, that he is the only one who has prepared the way. He prepared the way. Jesus Christ prepared the way. So the room is ready because of his preparation. And no one else, no other name under heaven can prepare the way. Do you see, that's the exclusivity of Christianity. That's what it believes, that's what it teaches, and that's what most angers the world at times, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. They don't care if you talk about Jesus Christ. But if you start to talk about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, you wade into pretty 
difficult waters. And I say that again. I say it again every opportunity I get, partly for young people. Here, young people hear this. Hear this. You can believe there are multiple ways to heaven. You have a right to believe that. But you cannot. You cannot, and I will go toe-to-toe with you to say to you, you cannot tell me that Christianity teaches that. And don't listen to anybody who says it does. Christianity does not teach that. The world believes that in many sectors. And, and we don't use the sword to convince them otherwise. We just continue to teach them what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. To be a Christian is to believe that is to believe that because he is the one who has prepared the way to get there and the only one who can. Now, that's part one. Let not your hearts be troubled. But look at now, today. Um, And the, the thing that I want to say to you is that God has not left us alone in the fight of faith to await the place that God has prepared for us. Um... That's what I think this, the rest of this text begins to tell about. He begins to tell about the promises of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going to turn now. Because in this text, again, you find the words in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, he says it again. And he says this in the context of of not just that there's a place, that's part of it, but that I will walk with you to that place. I'm not going to leave you alone in your journey to getting there. That's really what he begins to share with them in this second set of letting not your hearts be troubled. You see the context again as he's leaving. Part of what's troubling these disciples is that Jesus is with them, but he's talking about some crazy idea of leaving them. And they're fine, you understand what that's like, they're fine with him, kind of fine with him, although sometimes they'd like to tone him down and, and kind of correct him, as Peter tried and attempted at times. But the idea of him leaving them, and, and though they may not have totally put it all together, Jesus knew he was leaving them. He knew that there would be an interlude between the time when he was taken in the garden till he was resurrected And he knew they were going to feel alone. They were going to feel alone in that time. And and he begins to talk to them. He begins to give them a promise. And that's what the rest of this text talks about. He talks about sending a helper to be with them. Look at verse 16. He says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Why do they need another helper? The whole idea, Jesus is going to leave. This helper is going to go back to the Father in heaven. And so he says, the Father is going to send another helper. Now, it's important to understand something here. That word, another, another. Um, There are two different words that the writer could have used in the original languages. Two different words. One is alos, which means another of the same kind. Um, and, and that would be, you know, you can have an apple, but you can have an apple that has many different varieties of apples. So that would be another, another 
apple, but it might not be another of the same kind. And the second word is heteros, which means another of the same, uh, excuse, I said that, I said that wrong. Alos means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. And the word that Jesus used was the word alos. Another of the same kind. And if you were using, again, that illustration of apples, another of a different kind would be a different name of apple. But that's not what he says. He says another of the same kind, another helper. Another helper like himself is what Jesus is saying. I'm going to send another helper like myself to you. And here it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Turn, turn with me if you want to. If not, just listen carefully. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, look, listen to what is said there when it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about, the Holy Spirit that he's going to send. But it says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ. So here he says, Uh, that, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then he defines it as the Spirit of Christ. So the, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And here it's a reference to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, that's the Trinitarian God. But, but what we've said often and we continue to say is it, if you, if you've seen the Father, you have seen the Son. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Spirit. If you've seen the Spirit, you've seen the Father. In other words, they are, they are all of the same essence. They all have all of the Godhead in them. It's not one-third God, one-third God, one-third God. They are, are reflections of the other. They, they have all of the attributes of the Godhead in each of the persons in one God. Now, that's, that's confusing, but it's important to understand. We can't understand all of it, but you must understand. So when he says, I'm going to send you a helper, I'm going to send you a helper of the same kind. In other words, Jesus is going to leave, but he's not going to send him them a second-rate helper. He's going to send the same helper. Does that make sense? You see, that's what he's saying. I'm going to send you another helper, even the spirit of truth. It's important to understand that. Though he is leaving, he's not going to leave them alone. In fact, he is going to send the spirit to be with them. And not only with them, but in them. Look at the text again here as it says, Even the spirit of truth in verse 17, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you, with you and will be in you. He's he's talking about a day when the spirit of God will dwell in them. A reference to, to Pentecost, a reverence to the coming of the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell inside of believers. And uh, as, he, as he dwells in them, he will be a great help to them. You see, again, the fear was that Jesus would leave. Their leader would be gone. What was going to happen to them? All of that, and it got intensified as they went through that experience of Jesus leaving, literally leaving and being taken away. And their life fell apart, and their leader was gone. And 
Jesus is telling them, I'm not going to leave you alone forever. I'm going to send another helper. He goes on to reiterate it even stronger in verse 18 where he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit will come. The helper will come. So as we fight this fight of faith to to finish the course and to finish the race that's getting closer, as my friend reiterated to me, the finish line is getting closer. God walks with us. He doesn't leave us alone to do it by ourselves. The Holy Spirit aids us as we walk the walk of faith. He will not leave us as orphans and alone. And that's a tremendous promise that he gives to us. J.R. Packer talks about that idea of, of adoption. That's one of the doctrinal things that happens when, when you're justified, when you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. And the wrath of God gets put on Christ and, and no longer will be put on you and you come to spiritual life. You are justified. You're, you're, you're made right with God, but you also are adopted into his family. We hear less about that, but, but you literally are adopted into the family of God. And J.R. Packer writes about that in his book, Knowing God. Listen to what he says. He says, you can sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion, if you describe it as a knowledge of God, as one Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God, and God adopts us into his family by the Spirit of God coming into us. And then finally, um, he says something interesting. You have to go back to the beginning of where we're at. I want to close with this this morning. Next week, we'll talk more about how the Holy Spirit actually aids us. What we're talking about now is that he won't leave us alone. He'll send his spirit. We'll talk more about how that works its way out. But look at an amazing statement in verse 12 as we close. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What is Jesus saying there? I think in essence he's saying, it's better that I go. In fact, he said that other places. It's, it's, it's better that I go so that I can send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. It's better that I go. You don't understand that now. You have troubled hearts thinking about that, but it's better. And I think, again, that's what he's saying. It's going to be better. It's going to be better if I go. How is it better? I mean, think about that text. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will I do. Greater works. Be careful there how you think about that text. Um, We're so wired, I think, to take it wrong places. 
and immediately think about miracles and all the signs and wonders that Jesus did. And, and you need to be careful there if you start trying to equate what you can do and what God can do and that you can do it better than he can do it. Because I don't think that's the level at which he's talking about. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think what he's talking about here is a new eschatological age that we're coming to. It's a big term, but it just basically means post-cross. The kingdom has come in Jesus, and, and he is going, and what his preparation of the room is going to do is also launch us into a new age. A new age where he goes back to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. And there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit, Jesus, will be present in the life of all of his people. He won't just be physically there with the limitations of what he took on in being fully man and fully God, but the limitations of, of his humanity. He won't just be in one place with 12 of those disciples or, or maybe a few more who have believed to this point. But he will literally dwell with his people and be in them around the globe ultimately. Greater. I think it has to do with that kind of greater. The, the opportunity for people to see him, to see him in the lives of his followers, to see Christ as they magnify him, as they lift him up, as empowered by the Holy Spirit to lift up Christ to the nations. I think that's a reference of what Jesus is talking about. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that? It's because of a text in Luke chapter 10, somewhat. If you remember, Jesus was there and he'd sent out the 22 to to minister, and the 20, or the, excuse me, 72, and the 72 come back. And one of the things they're amazed about, is says, Master, even the demons are subject to us. Even the demons, are, see, that's what I mean. Be careful. Don't take this text that direction. And this is why, because of what Jesus said. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. What? Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That your names are written in heaven. The greater reference here, I think, is to that. The greater opportunity for the gospel to go to the nations, to the world, because the Spirit of God is going to come and dwell in his people. And the conversions that now can take place the, uh, the, the degree to which we know fully the message and we know fully things like what I just said to you about how he prepared the way and prepared it so that we would have a room. Those kinds of things were somewhat clouded at the point when he was talking. They, they weren't as clear. They were clear to him, but certainly not to the disciples. But you see, in this new age that dawns, it's greater greater opportunity to declare the message because we better understand the message, we better see the message. It's been fully accomplished in what Christ has done. And so that's the wonderful thing that he uses to encourage our hearts. First of all, that there's a place. And he has gone and he has prepared the way so that we can be certain of that place. And the other promise is that he will go with us as we get there. 
He will be with us. He will not leave us or he will not forsake us. He's not going to go away. He will be with us and take us to himself one day. The promise that we have, the promise that came at Pentecost, the promise that began to make more and more sense to the disciples when the Holy Spirit was sent upon them. And you see a dramatic shift, a dramatic change in their lives as God quieted their troubled hearts. I hope it quiets ours. I hope it helps us. I hope that, that we rest in those kinds of promises, that you rest that there's a place and all that has been done to get it ready and that he'll walk with us there. Let's stand together. We're going to sing together a song that I hope will be part of our response to that particular truth and those truths. We sang it once this morning, but uh, I think it bears that we sing it again. Be thou my vision. Let him be our vision. Let his promises be our vision. Let's sing together.
Father, we just pray that you will be our vision and the truths that you sought to teach the disciples through your Son would strengthen our hearts, that there is a place prepared and everything has been done and that you'll walk with us as your people to that place. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you, you're dismissed. Thank you.